Creating videos doesn't have to be expensive and time-consuming. At QuickFrame by Mountain, you'll get all the creativity without any of the baggage. Their solution has facilitated more than 65,000 high-performing on-brand video ads designed for both audience specificity and rapid creative testing. Get matched with a diverse community of creators across the globe who have the skills to bring your big and small ideas to life. Big screen performance on every screen in the home? It's not too good to be true. It's just how they roll. Visit quickframe.com to learn more. Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is Keith Putnam Delaney. Keith is the co-founder and CEO of Primer. They're one of the really interesting players that's redefining the space, and we're going to talk a lot around workflows, around data, uh, around multi-channel marketing, and really, Keith, what is a, a, a super contemporary of the moment, dare I say, of tomorrow approach to the business. Uh, and we're thrilled to have you on what great minds. So welcome, Keith. Oh, thanks so much for being here. I, I don't know if I'm going to live up to, uh, to, to being of tomorrow, but I'm excited to try. We'll at least try a little bit of yesterday and a little bit of today. And we'll see, and we'll see if that gives us some hints for tomorrow. So Keith, it's such an interesting background. And one of the areas that really jumped out at me, uh, looking back, to your uh, work about 15 years ago, I would say, was with the Reputation Institute. And we're in an era now where uh, uh, one of the many phrases you hear is post-truth and where things that are normal, what I think is normal, that would impact uh, someone's ability to be in a position of influence, to make decisions, and I'll go right to um, the hearings in January with Kevin McCarthy, when you had America, whether you're Democrat or Republican, being held hostage by a few people whose reputation in the actual world could not be worse, uh, referring to Matt Gates, you know, I think cocaine pedophile usually, or underage, you know, uh, act activity, let's just use that phrase, normally that would disqualify someone because of the damage to their reputation. Today, not the case. So I'd love to draw upon that early work around reputation. This is not a political podcast per se, but it's just such a good example uh, of someone who in another era, whose reputation would have been, you know, that's it for that person forever and no longer the case. Yeah, it's it's an interesting topic to think about um, how that's how that's evolved. Um, so so Reputation Institute's kind of a, a quirky uh, company. It was started as a uh, it, it came out of academia. Um, so some some research around you know what are the drivers of the perceived sort of reputation of somebody, and it was supposed to kind of take this concept beyond brand. Um, to kind of the more fully fleshed out, you know, realistic view of, of whether it's an organization organization or a person, what drives it. And at my time, when I first started working there, 
uh, there was sort of this synonym or, or, or association between reputation on the corporate front and uh, corporate social responsibility. And then, you know, we would do a lot of work to kind of unpack, you know, no, actually your, your corporate reputation is, you know, here are the following things that, that actually underpin it and drive it. Um, I think what we're seeing is that uh, there's a, a sea change between 15 years ago and today around uh, not only what drives somebody, a, a, cor- a you know, company's reputation, but an individual's reputation, right? It, it's defined by uh, uh, many, I would say, different things than it, it might be. The, the drivers of it, from and even a statistical standpoint, are uh, are quite different today than they might have been 15 years ago. How much of what's happened, the underlying circumstance that has allowed for that to happen, would you put under the heading of unintended consequence? You could argue it's an unintended consequence of of tech, of uh, of the of the structure of the society in which we live, uh, journalism, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah, I I would say so. Um, I don't think we're we're famous as a nation for for looking into the crystal ball and predicting the future very well um, and and planning accordingly. Uh, you would have to give the Chinese more credit for that than, than us, perhaps. Well, yeah, certainly uh, much better at us at long-term planning and execution of a plan. We were in a wonderful place called Goldeneye, my wife and I, uh, last year, and we've been there a few times. It was Ian Fleming's home, and it's where it's where he wrote all thir- – there were 13 original James Bond novels, starting with Dr. No. And he wrote all of them there. And it's now a little boutique place that's owned by Chris Blackwell, who founded Island Records. And you can go there. And it's just a wonderful place to go. It's very quiet. And no one bothers you. And it's beautiful. And it's got that, if you like Bond, it's really, you know, it got that Bond. It's a very overt tie-in when you're there. You get it, you know, and it, it's clear that that was Ian Fleming's home in, in ways that are hard to describe verbally. But when you're there, you get it. On one of our trips, we went to Kingston. We did a day trip and went to 56 Hope Road, which which was Bob Marley's house. And we went to Trenchtown, which is a very real place, not unlike the townships. Uh, You may know we just launched in Africa and um, we weaved a number of the townships, uh, notably Orange Farm, into the mix and brought Kevin Hart there. It It was a great day. But when we came back, the the guide said, do you want me to take the highway? And on the way there, we had taken very, you know, predictable, old, you know, narrow, poorly paved country roads. And we said, oh, we didn't know there was a highway. And there was this eight lane highway and make a long story short, it was built by the Chinese government. And they are doing that all over the world, in Latin America, in Africa, in the Caribbean, and embedding themselves into economies. And that absence of long-term planning you know, for us, that's an issue that in, in today's America, we never even get to talk about that issue. I'm doing way too much waxing here. Let, let's get back to you and sort of make a, a natural bridge to a lot of early work that you did around policy. You, uh, Keith, are a thoughtful guy. And I know you did some work in academia uh, and did a lot of writing. How do you think that background really help set the stage for the career path that you would ultimately take? Yeah, my, my father once uh, articulated his uh, 
career as as purposeful stumbling. Um, and I think that that was me up until a certain point. Um, I went down a, a research and a policy road um, before realizing that it wasn't the direction I wanted to take my my career. And when I thought about how do I make this shift, I, I was never never a business major, um, econ, none of that, uh, not really interested. And I was like, you know, what I what I know is is I know writing, I know reading, I know how to articulate an argument. Isn't that what marketers do? Um, so I I sort of dove headfirst into into marketing. This you know, it's this idea of understanding what are the underlying drivers of of your you know your target audience. You know, what motivates them? How do you like turn that into like a thoughtful piece of communication? Get it in front of them. Yada yada yada. It was, it was a really interesting. It's a lot of parallels between that that intellectual exercise um, and the day to day of you know sort of developing a marketing strategy. Um, and that that set me down like a rabbit hole, which uh, I have been tumbling down ever since. Um, and it's been it's been full of it's full of learning and certainly way more dynamic, <laughs> I would say, than most uh, policy and academic jobs. Well said and, and a great story. So the time when you make this pivot, give or take 2008, 2009, that's right when things are really starting to accelerate, right? The iPhone then was about three years old. YouTube was about two years old. Reflect on that period, Keith, as you entered that marketing and that strategy arena, the ground underneath was really starting to shift. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, everybody was uh, talking about kind of the death of traditional media at that point, right? It was a big topic, you know, the uh, you know, consumption of print journalism was plummeting. Everybody was talking about how digital is the future, digital is the future, but nobody really knew how to, how to make it happen, how to make these transformations. I think it was the first time you ever saw like somebody hired as chief digital transformation officer inside of companies. Um, and around that time, you know, I, I made the leap, I'm fully made the leap from not just marketing, but into tech and went and joined, um, Dropbox. And, uh, that was when, uh, it, it really kind of like, like I, I fell down two rabbit holes at the same time. So I was, I was going deeper into marketing and better understanding kind of this world of digital marketing. Um, but also going deep down the, the tech sort of uh, circus that was kind of, you know, San Francisco in the early 2010s, where we truly were, you know, straight out of the, the show Silicon Valley, which many of my friends still can't bring themselves to watch. It, it kind of cuts too close to home. Um, but but the like, I think what we found, what's been interesting to see is is like most things in marketing, um, there's there's a rebound. Um, so you know all these like the pendulum swings back and forth constantly within marketing, um, which is sort of the the exciting thing about it. Um, you have to constantly be be recalibrated. So you know there was this push towards digital, and then digital channels got saturated, fell victim to the law of shitty click throughs. There's been uh, there's been, there was a resurgence towards brand and TV advertising over over several years, which is reflected in media budgets. Um, and now you you know you're seeing like a, another step with with in some areas of the economy a little bit of a downturn. You're seeing like 
you know, a shift back towards digital? How do we make our budgets more efficient? Um, you know, I, I find it fascinating how uh, how there's this constant process of of evolution, but how very few things ever fully go extinct in our space. Things tend to come back uh, often in a different form, but uh, a different disguise. You know, my favorite is the whole evolution of the branded content space. And if you go back to, you know, the Brooklyn Dodgers in the 50s at Ebbets Field, the whole outfield wall was painted, you know, with brands, you know, you know, if somebody hit a certain part of the wall, win a suit, you know, at some place in Brooklyn that used to make suits and that was branded entertainment then also, as were the soap operas going all the way back. All right, so let's stick at Dropbox because that was a real interesting ride and uh, you led strategy around the launch of Dropbox for business, a broader repositioning of their product line overall. That must have been one hell of a ride. Yeah, I mean, it, it's fascinating being at a company that's going through, um, uh, there, it, candidly, it was going through a bit of an identity crisis. Um, you know, the the future of the company to investors um, and to most people, you know, it was clearly with the B2B product, right? It was just sort of, that's where the money was. That's where the traction was. But um, the founders, that was not the, that was not the company that they wanted to build. Um, so there was uh, years of sort of wrestling with this internal, like almost existential debate uh, about what is the identity of this company that, you know, candidly, like probably still has never been fully resolved. Um, but uh, it led to, uh, to a, a, you know, kind of, I think on my end, this discovery of how you can, how you need to be uh, an advocate, um, an internal advocate and sort of like there, how much of work is, is just as much internal positioning as it is external positioning with marketing. Um, you're selling as much to an internal audience when you're a marketing leader as you are to an external audience. Um, and that's like, I mean, that's the, that's a portion of the work that basically green lights or, or red lights, like your, your future. Um, and I don't know if, I don't know if I had recognized until that point, um, that it, it required at least 50% of my attention. I thought I could just focus on the ideas, focus on the execution and people would believe. And it was a little bit of my, my, uh, naivete of youth, uh, which, uh, has subsequently gone, which probably is what led me to start a company in the first place, because, you know, I, I don't really want to play the bullshit politic games that much uh, um, up the ladder. You and me both. So so you alluded to it, Keith, but that was a real interesting cultural moment, you know, referring to the uh, HBO send up of that era in Silicon Valley. Uh, talk about that culture and how much of that culture, if we were to fast forward, give or take 10 years, how much of that would be okay and how much would be not okay? Not referring to you, of course, just the general culture. Within Dropbox, I wouldn't say there was anything terribly scandalous that, that happened, uh, unlike, unlike some other places. Um, but, uh, I mean, what I will say is the, the excess of, of just uh, perks and I mean, Michelin star chefs and gyms and everything and everything possible uh, IT vending machines. And, you know, where you could just get an iPad, you know, because why not? You need an iPad, you know, and just scan your card. Um, things like that have 
have, I think, you know, now waned, um, which is probably for the good. It's a focus on on shareholder and investor value. Um, and, and part of that's, I think, in large part, because just like with mobile phones and the explosion of mobile apps, there's been a subsequent explosion of software companies. You know, we're on the we're on the downside of this, the downward curve of this industrial revolution, right? Like we peaked. Like SaaS, SaaS is is getting is only is getting bigger, but there's nothing, you know, there's no seismic shift happening in the software that that underlies it. Um, so now it's sort of like, all right, there's there's thousands and thousands of software startups. Like you can't like like I'm a, as an investor can. If I see some corporate governance stuff that I don't like, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna go somewhere else with my money. Whereas, you know, in early 2010, that those were the first unicorns, right? Those were that was like everybody was was knocking on the door to give you money, which meant you kind of felt like you had license to do whatever the fuck you wanted with it, um, and people did, and they were trying to attract great talent, and you know, it it was it was like a it it was a fascinating uh it's almost like like to be a fly on the wall i mean they they really nailed it in the show silicon about like i i swear there's probably a blood boy out there somewhere uh in silicon valley like i got in real life i wouldn't be surprised uh, yeah i think the meteoric rise of so many uh crash and burns of others one of my favorite little chapters of Advertising Week over the years was there was a brief rebirth for a few years of MySpace. And they came back as a partner. It was two brothers. I want to say Chris and Tim. We ended up doing something with Justin Timberlake. He was somehow involved, 2010-ish. But, you know, you go back to the original uh, timeframes and there was that moment, MySpace and Facebook were the same. They were... Just, you know, they were both about the same size. What an interesting period. Okay, so you then shift gears a little bit and get involved with uh, a startup, raising a lot of money, enjoying success, fast ride from zero to, you know, some pretty big numbers pretty quick. Talk about that transition and did you have that entrepreneurial spirit? Was it always in you or is it something that's sort of nurtured just being part of that Silicon Valley culture in that era? I never really recognized it as something uh, um, inside of me, if I'm being candid. You know, you hear a lot of a lot of people uh, who are entrepreneurs say, you know, they, they were doing that from day one, you know, college, high school, you know, it goes back all the way. Um, I, I, I'm, uh, I'm cut from a slightly different cloth, um, where it just felt like it was the, the culmination of sort of all of my experience that kind of led me to this, this point where I saw, I saw an opportunity, um, my, I was at a point in my career where my fallback options, you know, everybody talks about being an entrepreneur, you know, you get the question, it's like, oh man, it's so risky. You know, like, like, how do you, how do you have that risk appetite? And I'm like, at the end of the day, you know, I'm not putting my, like, I, I'm, I'm in a fortunate enough position where I'm not putting my, you know, my, my home equity up further, you know, uh, up, up to fund this company. You know, I've got fallback options. I can go back to what I was doing before. So it sort of struck me as sort of the, the less risky options option of them all it was sort of like the um 
there would be a lot of personal regret, just not giving it a shot. And then once you get into it, it does become a little bit like a drug. You like there, if you, if you're, if you are somebody who has risen up and is striving for these leadership positions, um, as I'm sure many, many of the folks who listen to this podcast are, um, then like there's this probably this drive inside of you for self-improvement to just kind of keep stretching and stretching and stretching. And there's nothing that, you know, facilitates that more than trying to start a, a business. And talk about that learning curve going out, you know, dealing with the the private equity VC world, raising money, very different from being, you know, an important cog leading the marketing engine at Dropbox, but you're getting a paycheck every two weeks. This is a different ball of wax completely. Yeah, yeah. And I think one of the reasons why we've been able to, um, to weather this storm is, uh, so to speak, in, in the landscape of, uh, of VC, is that from from the beginning, my co-founder and I uh, actually decided we we did not want to build. We originally didn't want to build a venture-backed business. Um, that was that was not our intention. Um, we wanted to kind of see if we could do things uh, the the old school way. Um, which, being in San Francisco, uh, made us uh, people would be like, well, like be like, why you're crazy? Uh, anybody outside of San Francisco would be like, I like would would be like you're crazy for doing the vc thing um so it it was it was a deliberate decision to to make sure that we had fundamental product market fit um first and foremost um and that we could get people to pay us for what we were building out of the gate um and then if you if you enter building a business with that discipline and that mindset you're used to making hard trade-offs um, and that sets you up for being able to, and, and you know, running a little bit against the grain of, of at least the the valley's ecosystem, um, it allowed us to like, frankly, like say no to things like stupid valuations a couple of years ago that we didn't think could last. Um, and now you see other startups who raised and and are going to get clobbered by a down round at some point because you know what in a different economic environment no you're not worth x hundred million of dollars which somebody said you were um so um that that from the get-go having that discipline involved i think uh uh just made, made the difference for us to be able to um enter this market and have a game plan in place um even in downside scenarios okay so i i want to start to dig in deep with Primer, but you just opened up a great pathway for us because you're very knowledgeable about the climate and about, you know, you touched on, you know, not wanting to have a valuation that was crazy, that would ultimately fall apart. But an awful lot of people went down that road of valuations that were crazy. And we've just seen, you know, the global banking system being shaken, you know, to its core, uh, where you've got bellwether brands, uh, referring in this case, uh, not to Silicon Valley Bank, but to Credit Suisse, dis about to disappear and about 40,000 some odd people about to lose their jobs is what I had read. So I'd love for your to hear your take on that climate. And did we have this coming to us in many respects? 
That's a tough one. I mean, I, I look at, uh, I mean, as, as a, I, like I said, to start this interview, I was not an econ major, um, but, but I look at, you know, how banks are being squeezed on both sides right now from depositor withdrawals, as well as, you know, maybe a little risky in terms of their, um, their, uh, their income makeups of their portfolios, like how they decided to, de to deploy those assets. You know, uh, I, you got to wonder about risk management. Um, the same thing could be said for a lot of these, uh, like a lot of these startups who, who didn't think about risk management of their, their business. Um, it is this, like, it's, it's, the parallel is just very clear. Um, so to do that, right, you have to be able to, you have to A, be willing to say no to the easy money. Uh, you got to put your, e like, like, like B, you got to put your ego in check. Um, and then C, you also have to be kind of contrarian, right? You have to be, you have to be willing to go against the group think, which, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people look upon entrepreneurs as like doing that by nature but but yes they are within maybe their 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 area of their product or their focus but most entrepreneurs are 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 experts at one thing right that they know really well where there's like a and there's a fit there right but they don't know what they don't know about um you know fundraising and uh, people management and all of the other things. They, they're looking for best practices in every other aspect of building their business. Um, so it can be easy to get sucked into, hey, everybody else is doing it this way, so I'm going to do it this way too. Maybe it's a safe choice. Great answer in such, such an interesting area. So let's get into Primer. You crafted together a, a tremendous group to get it off the ground, very varied, really reflective of the breadth and scope of your experience in relationships. Can you give us the Primer origin story? Sure. Um, so after Dropbox, I went and ran um, marketing and sales at a, at a super early stage startup. I was like, kind of, you know, I, I just wanted that. I wanted the less politics. I wanted the execution. Um, and I got, I got really, I went from this like policy think tank guy to this brand strategy guy to this like data guy over the course and systems guy over the course of my career. What I had to figure out how to do was, was basically, you know, hack together, um, the data and the systems without all the resources of the amazing engineers at Dropbox. Um, and I, I was saying, you know, I reached a point where um, I was like, you know what, I, I kind of, right, I'm ready for a break, take some time, think about some ideas. And I started doing consulting and um, kind of setting up this system for other early stage startups. And it just, you know, the, it's, it's a classic cliche founder story where you're like, all right, there's nobody's doing this. A bunch of people want it. Got to build a product around it. Um, so I got together with my co-founder who, uh, was looking for his next adventure after you know, you know, building trading algorithms at BlackRock and a Weiss and 3D visualization software, and he's just one of those people that is always interested in learning about new spaces. You know, founder dating is another interesting topic, but uh, 
yeah, we both had, we're very aligned on what we wanted and where we were in our lives. And we decided, you know, why not try this out and um, start building together and see where it takes us. And, and then our team that grew out of it was really a reflection of kind of the, the diversity of experience that we had. I love the book Range. I'm a big believer in it, even though I also love Malcolm Gladwell and 10,000 Hours, but I, I'm, I'm a range guy. I'm not a 10,000 Hours guy. Um, that's what we have. We have like a eclectic crew. That's fun. That's fantastic. And talk about the gap that you saw going back to that early sort of strategy, if you will. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think it's uh, something that whether you're in B2C or B2B marketing, everybody uh, will, will agree upon is that there is uh, just so much data to wrangle now, so much uh, to, to try to take advantage of. And in large part, because of the explosion of software tools, you know, much of that is distributed and siloed. So how can you start uh, wrestling it together, centralizing it? And then what in that act of centralization, what does that empower you to do differently that you might not have done before? What I saw happening, right, was in B2C, you had um, CDPs, right? Customer data platforms, all these all these tools that were basically helping you stream event data and user data from all your all your different sources, centralize it, and then construct audiences and push it out to all these applications where you, you, know, you send an email, you send a text, you serve an ad, you maybe create a, an experience on your website. Nothing similar existed in B2B. And at the same time, all the same dynamics that were hitting B2C of like so much more competition with the explosion of direct consumer brands and and you know, you know, limited places to advertise and get in front of customers with sort of the dominance of certain ad platforms. All of these things were, were true for B2B, but no one was positioning themselves to solve them. And that's what that's what we kind of came into being to to tackle. And how much of where you are now, you know, give or take almost four years in, relative to where you were when you started, how much of that plan is sort of what you thought it would be and how much of it has evolved a little thing COVID in between, you know, talk about the evolution of the business. Sure. Um, so the, the vision has not changed. Um, it's and the need is still there. The order of operations of what to tackle first, um, or what to tackle, uh, and, and the order in which to do so is, is, has been in flux and continues to evolve as, as the market evolves, right? Um, so COVID happens and big shift away from certain, you know, data sources that people need to, to wrangle this kind of software recession we're in shifts and, oh, oh we got to shift a little bit of our target market because our, our early adopters, you know, maybe don't have as much budget anymore. Um, so things like that have have influenced us, but um, this this thesis uh, still very much remains true. And in fact, I think I think the actual biggest insight or new like the thing that's like kind of really reinforced itself for me, um, two things um, that I think uh, most marketers, I hope most marketers would agree with because it's it's we're taking some big bets at it. Um, the first is that this this shift from the growth at all costs mentality means that this channel first focus that most people are like, okay, how can I, 
what, what is the next channel I got to get on or how can I improve the ROI of this chip of like Facebook and TikTok and email and SMS that the focus has been channel first, channel first, channel first. That is now, that is, that was already beginning to shift, but it's now, I think going to, the pendulum is going to dramatically shift the other way. The difference between like the Seth Godin, I'm going to put my audience at the center of everything I do, that kind of version of audience first marketing, the, the new version is going to be data driven audience. Like I am going to learn as much as I possibly can about this audience, about my target market and be able to match them across all these different platforms and leverage the shit out of my data. So that that's one thing that I think is accelerating. The other thing I think is... Uh, the insights, and this is going to sound like, you know, a little cheesy with all the chatter about AI and chat GPT and all this, but like, where, where do I place my bets? Um, I think a lot of marketing's job has been to, you know, kind of lick their finger with a hypothesis and just shoot and then just, but shoot a lot of darts. I think we were just going to get better at, at picking which darts to throw Great stuff. Such an interesting story. And we'll look forward to following uh, Primer as the journey continues. So Keith, j just to wrap, and this sort of ties a bunch of things that we touched on together. Before we started recording, we were talking about where we both are and people coming back to the office or not coming back to the office. And you're a guy who's been part of some really interesting cultures and helped build a lot of cultures and also done a lot of work in the leadership and mentoring and coaching arena. And I'd love to close just to get your perspective on the challenges of building culture today uh, in an era when folks are not necessarily embracing coming back to work, certainly nowhere near five days, if we're lucky if you get two, three days now in most companies. And if you push too hard for four, seems like the employees buck so to get your take on that and how will that impact creating the next generation of leaders? That's a meaty question. Um, I, the, the first thing that pops into my head. Um, so I, without, without being able to give it that maybe the due consideration I should, um, I think to, we, we have a fully remote, fully distributed team. Um, in fact, very geographically distributed. Um, it's global, even though we're we're pretty small. And um, what I am noticing are the keys to culture are are two things. The first is one that I I don't really like, um, but it's it's hiring the right profile person. Um, if you're going to if you're going to allow for a remote first uh, culture, you need to, if you're not going to have any time in office between people, you need people who are quite independent and you need to screen for that um, upfront. Um, there's some people like I, and this was me early in my career, right? I needed to be in an office for that kind of accountability, maybe to some extent. Um, but, you know, now you can't, you can't afford it. Um, and then I think what, what I'm noticing as, as a bit of a trend um, is the power of offsites for bringing people together to create those bonding moments and the just increased emphasis in those. And actually, how much can how much can be achieved in an offsite? Um, I think people used to 
look at offsites is previously is a little bit of like either boondoggles or maybe a bit of a waste of time. And I don't think they're going to be at the center of companies, people strategies. Interesting answer. And do you think we can create more leaders this way? Is it just, this is the new pathway forward? I don't think we have a choice, um, but I do, I do think we're going to see pushing back to the office. I like, I, I think it's inevitable that that will occur. Um, you know, you're, what's happening at Twitter might be an extreme, but uh, I, you know, you're already seeing it play out in some industries. Um, I think, I mean, if I want to look at this from a macro standpoint, if the economy were to cool down and the job market were to cool down, employers would have more leverage to basically say, hey, get back to the office. So I think we're just seeing, we're, we're going to see it swing, um, continue to swing back towards the office. It's just going to take a longer period of time than most people thought. Um, and, and, you know, the added flexibility doesn't hurt. And then, yeah, you know, with so, so much of people's work being... Um, it depends on the work you do, but like so much of knowledge work being um, a combination of like meeting and independent, I think you can still create leadership. Uh, managers just have to get good at giving feedback. Well, interest, interesting times and a super interesting conversation, Keith. Thanks so much for doing this. Uh, really enjoyed it. Uh, of course. Thanks so much for having me. And uh, yeah, great, great questions. Really appreciate the opportunity. There's a better way to make high-quality video ads. You know, like the ones that drive performance on every platform across the internet? QuickFrame by Mountain has hacked the video production process to deliver a faster, more efficient way to produce content. Through a global network of creators hungry to bring your brand's vision to life, you'll be able to iterate and improve upon your campaigns mid-flight, creating a feedback loop of testing and learning so you can scale your business and reach new audiences. Visit QuickFrame.com to learn more.